0: It's Friday, December 16th, 2022, the 695th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a variety of podcast sites. And, of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and the merch site by going to linktree.com. Slash, I'm your moderator. So yesterday we discussed Trump's major announcement of which there were two and everybody focused on the first announcement while leaving the second announcement alone. The first announcement, of course, was a series of collectible digital trading cards, NFTs, on a website called collecttrumpcards.com. So Trump, basically made a bunch of Trump cards available to the public for $99 a piece, and that would enter them potentially in a sweepstakes to attend an event at Mar-a-Lago or have dinner with him or play on one of his golf courses, a variety of great prizes. And those NFTs all sold out within 12 hours, netting Donald Trump in the neighborhood of half a million dollars. That is some pretty good fundraising. And apparently everybody wanted what he was selling as a nice kind of collectible and to push some money toward Donald Trump's efforts in the future. For that, every fake conservative on Twitter, all the legacy blue checks from both sides freaked out. They talked about how Donald Trump was so dumb. His supporters were so dumb. He's grifting off of them. He's lost his edge. Maybe he's retired. He just doesn't have it in him anymore. This whole politics thing. Donald Trump is just off his game. The Trump thing is over. Think piece after think piece. The Trump thing is dead. It's just time to let it all go (laughs) because he put out NFTs as a major announcement and we all got really upset immediately. Oh, so upset. How could he do this? It's like he's not even a serious person. Where's Ron DeSantis? And then an hour later, Donald Trump came out with a video outlining the most significant support of a basic fundamental American right by any president or presidential candidate in decades, the right to free speech and what he intends to do to protect and preserve the right to free speech. If we had open information, there is a strong chance that this awakening would have been completed years and years ago and we would not be going through the things we are going through now. Nonetheless, this is how things had to happen. So this is the field that we play on a president saying that he is going to preserve the right of the citizens to be able to voice their opinions in the public square as The First Amendment guarantees our right to assemble, our right to practice religious beliefs, our right to believe as we want and speak as we want. Donald Trump is protecting that. That was the major announcement yesterday. And by late afternoon, pretty much everyone realized that all the conservative incorporated media figures went out and face planted because they wanted to have The fastest reaction, they wanted to be the first people out of the gates talking about how dumb Donald Trump was, how dumb his supporters were in the smartest and cleverest way so that they could get all the retweets and impress all the other wannabe elites on Twitter, almost all of whom are just diehard members of the party of false decorum, just as these con Inc. Twitter traders are as well. So they spent a couple hours trying to tear down Donald Trump and his supporters, trying to make everyone understand that Donald Trump is dumb. He surrounds himself with dumb people and they make dumb decisions and they embarrass themselves and their supporters and everyone else all the time. They wanted to make that point. They were hammering on it once again. Every few weeks, they get the opportunity to do this. They write all of the same things. Donald Trump just doesn't have it in him to act responsibly and put quality people around him. He's so dumb and they're so smart. The Mike Cernoviches of the world, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the Tim Pools of the world. They are all so much smarter than Donald Trump. If they were in charge, oh, Trump would be in such a much better position. Trump doesn't understand how to reach their audience. So he's doing a very bad job. If only he would listen to them, he would have so much more support. And naturally, many Trump supporters piled on to this as well because they didn't take some time to understand what Donald Trump was doing. They simply reacted. They felt embarrassed. How are they going to explain this to their liberal aunt? How are they going to explain this to their barista? And even now that things have settled down, people are still saying, why does he do these things? He shouldn't be doing these things. If he didn't do these things and instead did something else, everything would be so much better. Okay. well, it's strange that he hasn't hired you as a political consultant and instead has just been doing things his own way and achieving monumental success at virtually every point. But I'm sure he could use your extra special help. But here's the thing, okay? Once Donald Trump does something, that's the new reality we live in. It doesn't make sense to spend your time whining about your personal hurt feelings and suggesting ways that, oh, the world could have been different. The new reality is the new reality. Accept the new reality as it exists and then find a way to win. We are in an information war. If you choose to look at everything on a surface level and you choose to see everything as an individual and discrete event disconnected from everything else, then you're really not putting yourself in any position to win or have any advantage whatsoever in the information war. Donald Trump is not stupid. You're not smarter than Donald Trump, okay? I'm not smarter than Donald Trump. The people on Twitter are not smarter than Donald Trump. We're certainly not better informed than Donald Trump. Donald Trump has access to all of the information, and he had it while he was formally recognized as the American president as well. He knows what he's doing. He has smart people around him. If he didn't have smart people around him, there's no way he would still be in this position. For seven and a half years, the most powerful people, entities, organizations, governments and governing bodies have consistently tried to attack Donald Trump and destroy his movement and demoralize his movement in every way imaginable. And he is still here. He won the election in 2016. He won the election in 2020. Now, I understand that they stole it, and I understand that people think they got away with it. But they didn't get away with it because pretty much everyone knows they stole it. More people understand that election was stolen every single day. So Donald Trump has been consistently successful under the most difficult nearly impossible conditions to navigate you could possibly imagine. But still, we all need to give our hot takes on what he should have done, what he could have done better. Our job is to accept reality and then figure out how to win in the information war based on the new information we have received from reality. That's it. And that doesn't require blind faith or blind loyalty. No matter what he does, it requires us, though, to not react immediately to what he does and take our emotional reaction as truth and then search for ways to justify and rationalize our emotional reaction as a proper rational reaction. That's not what it is. You don't have to trust Donald Trump all the time, no matter what, and Say he's doing good things when he's doing bad things in order to accomplish that. You just need to actually think about whether or not your first reaction is indicative of whether or not the thing Trump has done is actually bad because it turns out it wasn't bad. All the freak out was for nothing. All the freak out was led by people who are absolutely clinging to their membership in the party of false decorum always looking for a reason to say that Donald Trump is bad or, you know, there are some people out there who are frustrated and dealing with their black pilled feelings. And I feel for you guys. I understand it's frustrating. I get it. We talk about this all the time, but the black pilling does absolutely nothing except spread that feeling to other people, which is counterproductive. Deal with your emotions before you go talk about them publicly. That's just part of being an adult. And if you can't deal with it, if you can't do that, take a couple days off, get your life in order, and then come on back. No one's asking you to violate your principles on behalf of Donald Trump. We're just asking you to chill out a little bit and be patient with your feelings and see if something changes before you go crazy. Now, a lot of that was pushed forward by the same conservative incorporated legacy blue check Twitter people who had to immediately give their hot takes. And I bring them back up because they are all out there preaching their pro free speech anti censorship principles to the world. Finally, you might think, well, That sounds like a great victory. They're all finally supporting free speech. They're all finally upset about censorship on Twitter. Sure, they were a little bit upset over the last few weeks as the Twitter files came out. How could they do this? They all said, as if they didn't know about Twitter censorship for the last three years. They couldn't believe that Twitter would censor the political opposition Making it impossible for people to spread the truth about the lies in the COVID narrative, the lies in the election narrative, the election fraud, the stolen election, the insurrection, immigration, transgender, whatever it is. Those people should not be allowed to talk, but they got a little upset when they heard that Twitter was trying to cover up the stolen election, trying to cover up the Hunter Biden laptop, trying to cover up the facts about COVID trying to cover up their partnership with elements of the federal government and law enforcement agencies and intel agencies in the deep state. They were a little upset, but now, now they are coming out strongly for free speech. And why? Well, it's because all of the legacy blue check Twitter people on the left who they are constantly engaging in popularity contests with and little schoolyard fights online with, all these people whose hair they tug, the girls with the purple hair on Twitter, they just give them a little tug. Oh, hey, I'm being a little bit mean to you now. Do you like me better? That's what they do on Twitter. All those people that they want to impress all the time, well, they were very upset because some of their friends were suspended from Twitter last night, causing an absolutely enormous meltdown. They actually started a Twitter spaces so that they could whine publicly about the censorship and people like Brian Stelter joined and people like Tim Poole listened in. And at the end of their conversation, people were reporting actually about the conversation they were having. People were live tweeting the conversation the whole time and then just somehow The feed cut and it didn't record. So now there's no record of their conversation that we can pick through for fun. And I'm sure it will come back. I'm sure someone got it out there and it'll be hilarious when it does. But it turns out that they were not getting the reaction they expected. The public didn't actually care that they had all been censored because they themselves had promoted censorship for years. Barry Weiss, who is one of the people in charge of disseminating the Twitter files for the masses on the left, well, she was very upset that Elon Musk, who has just made her career so much better by including her in this project, now he has censored people she likes. And the people she likes, by the way, are other regime elitists. Barry Weiss isn't some pro free speech advocate. She's not a free speech absolutist. She's not out there on the front lines speaking out against censorship. She is just an absolutely devout regime elite communist, period. Barry Weiss is on the far left. She supports the entirety of the agenda. She'll tell you when the agenda might have gone just a little bit too far. Oh, I see that you guys are upset with the people on the very, very far fringes of communism. Let me just tell you, I'm only like 90% of the way there. I don't agree with them that it should be okay to cut off children's genitals, but I do believe everything else they say about gender. Well, hey, okay, commie, I guess you're a centrist now. And of course, because she's now the very important Twitter guru who knows everything about Twitter in free speech, even though she ignored the issue for most of the last three years, she has weighed in with a thread. Here it is. It's short. The old regime at Twitter governed by its own whims and biases, and it sure looks like the new regime has the same problem. I oppose it in both cases. And I think those journalists who are reporting on a story of public importance should be reinstated. Well, that's not what they were doing. What about the rest of the journalists who are actually reporting on important public stories over the last three years? Are they allowed back or are they still dangerous Nazis that should be silenced? Huh, Barry? I have never been swayed by the Twitter is a private company argument, and I'm left wondering, as I wrote yesterday at the FP, get a little advertisement in for her new media company, her well-funded media company, where there are. Only leftists pretending to be centrists. Whether any unelected individual or clique should have this kind of power over the public conversation. I don't need to dwell on how mesmerizing it is to watch those journalists who defended even celebrated Twitter's bans under the old regime under the guise of safety now call it censorship and say it infringes on freedom of expression. It did then as it does now. For a deeper conversation about this important issue... Listen to today's episode of her podcast with Congressman Ro Khanna. Now, Ro Khanna is a dyed-in-the-wool communist. And Ro Khanna, if you remember from the Twitter files, was the person who emailed Vidya saying, hey, don't you think that maybe there are some First Amendment issues that you might be getting wrong in this whole censorship of the Biden laptop story? Isn't that maybe a problem? And he said, "I know. I know there's nothing on the Biden laptop except for like Revenge porn. There's definitely not proof that the man trying to be president at the time was compromised by our greatest adversaries." There's none of that. I understand that. The Hunter Biden laptop is totally not a big deal. But still, like isn't there a free speech issue? Oh, very brave Rohana and very brave Barry Weiss, for having such a staunch advocate of free speech and free expression and constitutional rights on your podcast. You're basically a right winger now. So Barry Weiss and conservative incorporated media legacy blue check Twitter in total. They all agree that now. Free speech is an important issue. They need to get out there on the front lines, make their opinions known. Don't stop complaining about it until something changes. Where was that energy for the last three years? Where was that energy for all the con Inc. Twitter simps in the GOP elite and establishment who immediately knew yesterday that it was time to attempt to make fun of Trump and his supporters once again, where were all those people standing up for everyone who was banned, everyone ostensibly on their side who was banned over the last three years? Well, they were nowhere to be found. They didn't go join the censored on alternative media platforms. No, they said to themselves and everyone else, my platform is very, very important. I just can't stand to lose my platform. This is where I get my message out. And oh, what an important message it is. They didn't defend free speech over the last three years. They did virtually nothing. Some of them expressed opinions about how bad it was, but then they just went on learning in the environment they knew was censored. And they still think that they are on the cutting edge of knowledge about world politics, Current events, and of course, the science. These people are absolutely clueless, but they are still setting the tone and the agenda of the public conversation because they are allowed to, because they are seen as serious thinkers by virtue of their legacy blue check marks on Twitter, which are, by the way, soon going away. And it's funny, Elon has actually updated the checks on Twitter. So, when he first released the option for people to subscribe for $8 a month to Twitter Blue and then get a blue verified check mark, legacy blue checks freaked out. On the blue check mark, though, if you clicked it, it would say, This person has been verified by paying $8 a month. And on the legacy blue check marks, it said, This is a legacy blue check mark. Because these people have been deemed notable or public figures or something. Well, he's changed it. Now, the verified blue check mark says, This is a legacy verified account. It may or may not be notable. And says that even on Barry Weiss's page. Elon has said that what he plans to do is strip everyone of their blue check marks and the people. Who want to keep theirs can pay $8 a month like everyone else, and it'll say that they paid $8 a month for their legacy blue check mark. Their status symbol, this is probably the most important status symbol in these people's lives. Their status symbol is going to be taken away, it's going to be removed, and then they're going to have to act like everyone else. So let's get a little more on the people who were censored. This is from Post Millennial this morning. Elon Musk joins Twitter space with woke journalists, informs them they're not special. Doxing rules apply to them. Elon Musk joined a Twitter spaces on Thursday and told journalists that despite their noble and storied profession, they will get no special treatment when it comes to policies on doxing or sharing real time location information of others. As I'm sure everyone who's doxed would agree, Musk told listeners to the spaces, drawing real-time information about somebody's location is inappropriate. And I think everyone on this call would not like that to be done to them. And there is not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists, simple journalists, and regular people. Everyone's going to be treated the same. You're not special because you're a journalist. You're just on Twitter. You're just a citizen. No special treatment. You dox, you get suspended. End of story. And ban evasion, or trying to be clever about it, like, I posted a link to the real time information, that is obviously simply trying to evade the meaning. That's no different from actually sharing real time information, he continued. This came after Musk had issued temporary bans to left leaning journalists that had posted his real time location, which he said were, quote, Basically, assassination coordinates in obvious direct violation of Twitter terms of service. Same doxing rules apply to journalists as to everyone else. Musk said to venture capitalist Mike Solana, who had criticized the suspensions on these grounds. Criticizing me all day is totally fine, but doxing my real time location and endangering my family is not. Musk said journalists who for years had been used to Twitter's moderators doing their bidding, such as suspending Donald Trump while he was still serving as the president of the United States, despite mods admittedly knowing he had not broken any terms of service, were angered by the move. Conservatives, however, noted that turnabout was indeed fair play. If they're naughty, they get suspended, Musk replied to Human Events Daily's Jack Posobiec, who posted a clip of the comments. Policies on doxing are personal for Musk, who on Wednesday reported that his child had been stalked. Musk shared video of the man suspected of stalking, chasing the car the child was riding in and jumping up on the hood. And wouldn't you know it, the guy was wearing a mask in his car and all black, looked exactly like Antifa. Now, why would someone want to attack a car that Elon Musk's child is driving in? Well, Apparently, they thought Elon Musk was driving in it. So you ask, why would someone want to attack the car that Elon Musk is driving in? Well, (laughs) that's a result of a harassment campaign on Twitter, isn't it? I mean, that's what it's from, right? Can we say that? I mean, for the last few years, we have been told that right wingers and QAnons, anybody who is not down with the regime agenda, All of those people simply by talking about journalists and saying that they don't like certain journalists or certain politicians or whatever it is, them doing that is actually creating the threat of real world violence. And even though no real world violence actually came from it, they continued to use that as a justification for censorship. Now we have someone actually showing up and stalking Elon Musk and his family as a result of what these journalists are doing and spreading, and everyone is up in arms about the violation of free speech. Elon noted about the other night when this stalker chased down the car carrying his small child. Last night, he said, car carrying little X in L.A., that's his kid, was followed by a crazy stalker thinking it was me who later blocked the car from moving and climbed onto the hood. In that video, the license plate of the car could be seen, which led to a conversation about if posting that license plate was doxing. So the people who are mad at Elon Musk all the time, oddly, the same people who are mad at Donald Trump all the time and mad at Kanye West all the time and mad at Donald Trump supporters all the time and mad at Anyone who supports or defends in any way, Elon Musk or Kanye West, they were defending the stalker from being doxxed. And then they're claiming that journalists have a right to dox Elon Musk down to his exact tracked location. Anyone recognize this person or car, Musk tweeted after posting the video? Any account doxing real time location info of anyone will be suspended as it is a physical safety violation, Musk said, noting that the policy includes posting links to sites with real time location info, posting locations someone traveled to on a slightly delayed basis isn't a safety problem, so is okay. Musk also banned an account that tracked and posted the location of his private jet after promising not to do so in the name of free speech. Accounts engaged in doxing receive a temporary seven-day suspension, Musk said. He also said that the company was working on a feature that would display the time period of the suspension and what the account was suspended for. And so people are very upset because Elon Musk's decisions seem to just be made on an ad hoc basis, much like the decisions of the former regime at Twitter And he seems capricious in his enforcement of these rules that are, in some sense, being made up as they go along. Now, it is Elon Musk's role and responsibility to set new policy at Twitter. So if that's what he's doing and he's sticking to it, well, I guess those are the rules. That is what we've been told. The rules are the rules. If you break the rules, then you'll get suspended. It's your fault. And that includes people like me who didn't break the rules and nonetheless got suspended. Still my fault. As long as I'm not there to harass these communists, they are happy. And it doesn't matter what rule is enforced to get me and people like me offline. But now everyone has principles based on exactly who we lost. From Twitter, and who did we lose? We lost the CNN hack, who is just a fake media propagandist, a hundred percent of the time, just not attached to reality whatsoever, and doesn't care at all. Aaron Rupar, CNN's Donny O'Sullivan, was also suspended. So was Keith Olbermann, and I know what you're thinking: Oh no! Also suspended were the Washington Post's Drew Harwell, Times reporter Ryan Mack. And Mashable reporter Matt Binder. What will we do without them? Well, we're going to find out for a couple days. It sounds like Elon Musk is going to give them all a seven day suspension. He said it was probably wise. A seven day break from Twitter would be good for anybody. And hey, that's fine. They doxed his exact location. They shared information of people who were doxing his exact location. And of course, they're claiming they didn't do it, so they won't be punished. They are acting like the children they are. But hopefully he does let them all back on in a matter of a few days. Maybe they'll have learned their lesson. I don't want people to be censored. I don't need people to be censored. I need everybody to be uncensored, because if that happens, these people will be totally irrelevant. They don't have the most basic Qualities necessary to be a good and valuable and effective journalist. They're not honest. They're not curious. They don't care about objectivity. One of the hosts of the Twitter spaces last night where they all got together and whimpered was a man named Ben Smith, who used to be at BuzzFeed. He's actually the guy that published the Steele dossier. The fake steel dossier that Ben Smith, he then went to The New York Times and now he's at that new news outlet called like Seriform or Sephora or something like that. That guy, if I recall correctly, is one of the people who was arguing at The New York Times a few years ago that it was no longer a journalist's job to be objective. In fact, journalists had a responsibility to do their work in service of social justice. I'm pretty sure that was him. So these people lack all the qualities necessary to be good and valuable and effective journalists, and they certainly aren't interested in holding power to account. They are not interested in representing the informational needs of the people. They are only interested in disseminating the regime's propaganda because they are convinced that the regime is the only path toward goodness. In fact, if you support the regime enough, if you give the regime enough power, eventually we will reach utopia. It is Ben Smith's job to push that ahead, as it is for all of these other journalists. And they have abandoned any objectivity whatsoever. Even the facade of objectivity was too much to bear. So they simply declared their allegiances. They kept the title of journalism because we know inherently our principles baked into our foundation. We know how important a free press is. So they retain the title of journalist so that they can use it as a shield. We're the free press. You can never say anything bad about us. We're going to take it as a threat. And then your a threat to the free press, and that violates your principles. So now you have to stop saying bad things about us. That's how they've used it over the years, not to protect free speech, not to hold the people in power to account, just to protect themselves and their careers and their platforms. So let's get into some election stuff. This is pretty interesting. The Epoch Times yesterday put out this piece. Pennsylvania County to recount 2020 election results in 2023. Persistent questions from voters and a petition with 5,000 signatures have convinced the Lycoming County commissioners in Pennsylvania to recount its 2020 election results. Around the state, loosely organized groups of voters have been asking various counties for recounts from 2020. In our county, they approached our commissioners and leveled allegations that there were thousands of uncounted votes in our county based on what I believe are nonsense statistics, Lycoming County Director of Elections Forrest Lehman told the Epoch Times. Groups of 20 to 80 people started attending county meetings asking for the recount. The county showed various information to answer their questions, Lehman said. But voters still wanted a recount and gathered some 5,000 signatures to make that request. That's when county commissioners decided, as the Board of Elections, that if there are 5,000 people who signed this petition and have this belief, then we need to hand count these ballots in order to restore public trust in the outcomes of our elections, Lehman said. The county has about 70,000 registered voters and a population of around 120,000, so to the commissioners, 5,000 is a lot of signatures, he said. This is not something we want to do after every election, but we need to do it once at least in order to prove once and for all that our voting system counts the votes accurately and that there were not thousands of uncounted votes that were hidden by an algorithm or some other nonsense like that. Lehman said Lycoming County votes by machine. Voters fill in ovals on paper to indicate the candidate they want, and the paper is fed into a scanning machine where an image of the ballot is captured and the vote is counted. The paper ballot is saved in a secure location. The scanned count is stored on a removable USB device on the scanning machine in each precinct. Lehman explained when the polls close, all precincts take their USB device to election headquarters where each USB dumps its information into the county machine. And ultimately, those vote totals are given to the Department of State for statewide totals. That is not how the recount will go. Instead, around 40 county staff members will hand count the nearly 60,000 paper ballots. They will look at two 2020 races, U.S. president and Pennsylvania auditor. We chose the auditor general as the second contest for two reasons, Lehman said. It is on the front of the ballot along with the president, so that'll eliminate the need to flip over every ballot. And that seems to be such an important concern. You wouldn't want them flipping over ballots. The other reason we picked Auditor General is because that was a statewide contest that was won by a Republican, because obviously the presidential contest was won by a Democrat. The county wants to look at voter behavior and see how often people split their votes between parties. There has been an inability to believe that voters might have split their tickets, that they might have voted for a Democratic president, but then they turned around and voted for a Republican for other offices, Lehman said. There's been an inability to believe that people might do these things, whereas I absolutely know that people do those things because I see the ballots. He does not expect recount results to be precisely the same as the original report. We don't expect that any recount of that many ballots is going to match one to one with the voting system. Well, that's weird. Why not? The computer is supposed to read them exactly. We expected that there will be human errors committed during that hand count. But they also don't expect to be off by thousands, he says. So there could be human errors in the count. And that's why we use the machines. You would think that the machines would be more accurate. I mean, they must be reading those little circles the right way, right? Or what would be the point of using the machines? The hand count ostensibly is what might produce the error because, you know, humans, they can't count circles as well as machines can. But still, they do expect some discrepancy, just not a big one. Let's hope that we don't hear anything about ballot tampering or about chains of custody or about whether or not we're actually getting all of the actual original ballots as this progresses. The Department of State sent counties a letter in November advising that although the two year retention schedule for 2020 ballots was over in November 2022, Counties should look at their individual situations and if there are challenges over the 2020 election, consider keeping the ballots longer. Lycoming County commissioners intend to keep ballots through 2023, Lehman said. The recount will start January 9th and could take a week or more. We have to get back to people being able to accept the outcome of elections, Lehman said. Even if your side loses, you can't just love democracy when you win. Well, Lehman sounds like a diehard communist, so this is going to be something that we have to keep our eyes on. It's good to see this sort of progress and to see local action in counties around the country being able to produce recounts, particularly of the 2020 election that it's important to always remember. Donald Trump never conceded. So there was a hearing in Maricopa County this morning in the Kerry Lake lawsuit, and the judge down there has granted, in part, a request from Kerry Lake and her attorneys to analyze ballots. They're going to get a random sample of 50 ballots. They are not being allowed to analyze the ballot envelopes. Not exactly sure why. But this is going to start next week. The trial is still scheduled for next week. They're hearing, I believe, if I have this correct, the motion to dismiss over the weekend. There will be responses from both sides, and they expect to do the trial next week. So we'll see how all of this progresses. But at least for now, this is a relatively small but nonetheless significant win a user on Twitter who goes by the legal process put together a great thread of evidence from Kerry Lake's lawsuit and from the affidavits that were filed in that lawsuit. He writes Kerry Lake files to inspect the ballots in Maricopa County, requests ballots printed by Runbeck, printed by county's ballot on demand printers, and including the spoiled ballots. She proposed a random sampling from the sites in segregated batches. Selected by Lake Kerry Lakes eyewitness testimony. Poll observers claim that 25 percent of tabulators at Murphy School Center rejected ballots, tabulated ballots in box three were commingled with untabulated ballots in the same bag. And we've heard those complaints before. We've gone over a bit of that. That was mentioned in her lawsuit. They had a nine to one Republican voter ratio in line on Election Day. According to another eyewitness observer, this one at a senior center in Scottsdale located at Via Linda and Mountain View, many of the people put their ballots in box number three. They were frustrated by heat and delays. They had things to do. They had to pick up their children. They had to go to work. They couldn't stand in line in the heat. So they left after placing their ballots in box number three. Voters remarked that they were concerned their votes would not be counted. The failures of the machines forced people to go vote at other locations. One of their roving attorneys tasked with observing the elections, a man named Michael Brenner, noted in his affidavit that eight of 11 centers he visited had printer and tabulator failures. He personally witnessed a voter stuff six ballots into a drop box. He saw a voter without ID try to vote. He reported that average wait times were between 45 and 60 minutes. Another observer, an affiance named Shauna Bunker, said that there were repeated tabulated failures throughout the day. Election workers once again mixed tabulated with untabulated ballots. Inspectors instructed workers to put both into a single black bag, commingling the tabulated and untabulated. But that's probably not going to cause a problem. Affiant Ariane Busser said that the inspectors advised her at the center that they did not have and therefore could not provide the numbers from the e-poll book. A voter supplied an affidavit that showed that forced to put her ballot in box number three later that afternoon, she looked on the county website and it showed that she had voted despite the fact that she had used box number three. So her vote being tabulated could not have already happened. She contacted the county and they confirmed that her vote was still uncounted, but would be counted the next day. So very tight system they're running. And there were all sorts of errors like this. There's one very interesting one. A voter cure volunteer signed an affidavit where he says, Additionally, I volunteered to do ballot curing on behalf of the Kerry Lake campaign, and the first call I made was to a household who informed me that the ballot that needed curing belongs to a man who died in 2001. I remember that his last name was True Blood due to the irony of the situation. So it sounds like we have mountains and mountains of evidence, very similar to the evidence we saw in 2020, which should be no surprise to anyone because they used the same system to create election fraud to steal an election. The system remains the same. The system exists To produce these results. As long as no one ever looks at the system, then everything goes just fine for the regime in the process of stealing elections. It is when people actually pursue election fraud like Kerry Lake is now that this stuff begins to come out and be exposed to the public. But this is how our elections are run. Now, if you're someone who follows me on social media, you would have seen a couple of nights ago, I went through Sonny Borelli's election fraud case in Mojave County, Arizona, and posted all of that on social media. So I do want to go through a little bit of that. This case centers around slightly different issues than Carrie Lake's case. Sonny Borelli and the other plaintiffs on the case argue that because of the problems in Maricopa County, the votes of the residents of Mojave County have been diluted. Their vote has been counted for less. They can't trust the outcome of the election for governor. That governor is going to be governing over Mojave County, just the same as Maricopa County. So Mojave County deserves a properly run election in Maricopa, just as Maricopa County deserves a properly run election around the rest of the state. It all has that effect. This is the same sort of principle that was at work when Texas and Louisiana and I believe 17 other states filed to the Supreme Court after the 2020 election, saying that election problems in the swing states were actually creating a problem for all of the other states that did not have the same election problems. Now, those other states did have the same election problems, of course. But the argument was about equal treatment and due process and how the election on a national level was distorted by the actions of these individual states who ran overtly fraudulent elections. So I'll go through the introduction here and then get to a couple of the claims following along what I posted the other night. In Arizona, as throughout the United States, an elector or voter, regardless of political party has the right, if not the responsibility, to participate in safeguarding the integrity of an election, including, if necessary, initiating proceedings rightfully afforded to him or her by law to ensure that inaccuracies in tabulating votes are judicially remedied under the procedures set forth in the U.S. Constitution and Arizona statutes. This ensures that election results reflect the will and actual votes of the electorate. In comporting with Arizona Revised Statute Section 16-672, they go on to quote a U.S. federal court case from 1964, Westbury versus Sanders. Indeed, no right is more precious in a free country than that of having a voice in the election of those who make the laws under which as good citizens we must live. Other rights, even the most basic, are illusory if the right to vote is undermined. And that is Arizona and federal law both mandate uniform administration of elections. Exact uniformity between counties is not required, but uniform application of prescribed procedures for voting processes within each county is both presumed and mandatory. The Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore found constitutional violations of the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution, where Palm Beach County had repeatedly changed the rules for counting votes. The county initially utilized a 1990 guideline which precluded the counting of completely attached chads, switched to a rule considering a vote to be legal if any light could be seen through the chad, changed back to the 1990 rule, and then abandoned any pretense of a per se rule, only to have a court order that the county considered dimpled chads legal. Maricopa County's policies and procedures were no less chaotic. And we have seen that policies shifting on a whim, changing legal interpretations of just about everything so that they can get the results they wanted. Now, a lot of this case revolves around how signature matching was done in Maricopa County from the case Evidently, to try to speed up its signature verification process, evidently, right? That's the premise by which they institute these processes. They say that they need to speed up the process, the signature verification process. One of the very few safeguards they have to ensure that a mail-in ballot actually comes from a real voter is that signature verification process. But that signature verification process has been made a mess ostensibly to speed up the process. But the process hasn't been sped up. We still don't have answers on 2020, much less 2022. If all of this was hand counted on hand marked paper ballots in small precincts, we would have had an answer on election night. And that answer would have been highly accurate. Maybe it would have been off by a few votes here and there. Maybe there would be some human error, but by and large, it would be. Highly accurate unless they were committed to skewing the numbers during the process. So to try to speed up its signature verification process, Maricopa County election officials took an unproven approach in the recent general election by delegating to a private corporation and its software the crucial job of assessing the veracity of signatures on approximately 1.3 million mail-in ballots and presumably ballots retrieved from drop boxes. Maricopa intended that the delegated software, this is the software that they have used to delegate the responsibility of signature matching to, would compare a voter's signature on a mail-in ballot or ballot retrieved from a dropbox against a signature exemplar the voter had signed in the past, such as a record from the Department of Motor Vehicles, Untrained temporary workers would then be hired to review the software's adjudications. But county election officials indulge this experiment without first putting in place safeguards to make sure it works. And of course, once again, we have the issue of a private company. They have delegated one of the responsibilities of the election process to a private company. Now, when they do that, they claim that these private companies have All sorts of proprietary claims, intellectual property claims. They can't allow their systems to be checked and exposed. They don't want the code getting out there because all of that would harm their business. So the voters have no way to hold these private companies accountable and they are considered private companies by people who want to consider them private companies. Even while they are involved in a public-private partnership, they are doing the business of the state, but claiming the private company status so they cannot be held accountable to the voters. And for some reason that definitely could not be compromise or corruption, the state is always glad to go along with that explanation and agree that the private company they have formed a partnership with shouldn't be held accountable for anything. And because the private company can't be held accountable for anything, well, then no one can be held accountable for anything. Back to the case. The Arizona attorney general has pointed out that such delegation is not authorized by Arizona law. No Arizona statute allows counties to outsource a role so crucial to computer software. Moreover, Maricopa County failed to provide the procedures and training requirements necessary to enable humans to work with the delegated software. Upon information and belief, Maricopa County ran 1.3 million images on monitors past the eyes of a few dozen of its signature verifiers at such a rapid clip, it was physically impossible for them to verify the delegated software's adjudications about those images reliably. And I'm going to jump through the highlights of the case as I noted them in this long thread. In discussing the importance of adhering to election laws as they are written, they note the Supreme Court of Arizona has explained, considering their purpose, such laws are very important. It bears emphasis. Both these non-technical statutes advance the constitutional goal of, quote, setting forth procedural safeguards to prevent undue influence fraud, ballot tampering, and voter intimidation. Such laws may seem trivial at first, but they are imperative to secure the purity of elections and guard against abuses of elective franchise. Indeed, the purpose of Arizona revised statute 16-550A is to prevent the inclusion of invalid votes. So they are reaffirming There actually is a need to look at all of these ballots in a proper way to ensure that invalid votes are not included in the final count. And you might say, well, of course, nothing could be more obvious, but they don't do it. And that's the point. They don't care. They want the invalid votes entered into the count, and they don't want to have anyone held responsible for it. So they simply delegate the authority to a computer program. Borelli's attorneys write, the law is well settled. Once the legislature prescribes a particular voting procedure, the right to vote in that precise manner is a fundamental right. Changes to voting procedures that disenfranchise certain voters are a per se violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And per se, of course, means in itself. Changing the voting procedures in this way is itself Despite any results or how it might treat one party or another, changing the procedures in this way is itself a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's the claim. While elected officials in Maricopa County may have felt required to take shortcuts due to time constraints, the press of time does not diminish the constitutional concern. A desire for speed is not a general excuse for ignoring equal protection guarantees here, Maricopa County officials, 1. failed uniformly to administer the general election consistent with state mandated procedures. 2. adopted unproven and misguided procedures to cope with its handling of the election. 3. poorly implemented those procedures, which became more burdensome than available alternatives prescribed by law, so they actually made it more complicated while failing to follow the law. And 4 relied on unproven proprietary software of a non-governmental third party to initially verify ballot signatures, thereby injecting artificial intelligence into the voting process in a manner not prescribed by law. Nothing in Arizona election laws authorizes a county to outsource signature verification to a non-government third party, let alone to that party's unproven and proprietary software. But that is exactly what Maricopa County decided to do. And how about this? Entering the 2020 general election, Maricopa County immediately experienced problems with the delegated software. This is the 2020 election we're talking about. On October 9th, 2020, Runbeck informed Maricopa County that there would be a delay to set up the general election of the server and that the system might not be available until Monday morning, October 12th, 2020. Maricopa County's director of elections responded, demonstrating the level of reliance county employees would place on the technology by threatening to cancel the contract with Runbeck and commenting that, quote, so much for using Varis pro for the general and me stating early on to proceed, noting we should not see any major issues. He added, excuse my French, but this shit show needs to be improved on post haste from Runbeck. He also informed Runbeck that he regretted the decision to use Veris Pro. This is the software that analyzes the signatures. Again, I am regretting my decision to proceed with using Veris Pro for the general and to be proven wrong that we won't have any issues. And to put my name to that decision and have it be a first file issue is beyond frustrating. So there is clear evidence that the election director himself knew all of this was a problem, since 2020. Another rather stunning problem. Maricopa County provided Runbeck with Arizona voter registration files that included not only the voters' exemplar signatures, but their political party and frequency of voting, among other information. So the county, the officials tasked with doing this, gave away all of that voter information to Runbeck. Arizona revised statute. Section 16-168 makes sharing signatures with others unlawful, so they violated the law to engage this process in the first place. From the case, the delegated software's product sheet, Runbeck's company website, and Runbeck's May 29th, 2020 letter quote all contemplate comparing the ballot signature to but a single signature exemplar. How many signature exemplars are recommended by professional forensic signature experts? Professional forensic document examiners may require 5, 12, or even 25 exemplar signatures to compare to a question signature. But in Maricopa, using the artificial intelligence, the machine to analyze these signatures, they only had it compare to one signature example. Where might the delegated software's loan signature exemplar have come from? Many exemplar signatures are captured at DMV offices when would-be voters register to vote. Those DMV registrants don't make their exemplar signature on paper, though, like the ballot signature to be compared against. Instead, registrants at the DMV use a stylus on a digital pad. There is no evidence that signatures made with a stylus on an electronic pad look sufficiently like signatures made with pen and ink on paper. And there are good reasons to believe they do not. And everyone hearing my voice right now knows that is true. Your signature on paper does not look like your signature on one of those little pads where you use your index finger or a little plastic pen. Sometimes my signature is totally different than other times. Most of the time, it's a complete and total mess. Donald Trump has a very consistent signature. I don't know what it all means. It just looks like a, uh, a heart monitor all squished together. But uh, at least he's always doing the same one. Such signatures look distinct from those handwritten on paper, both because people move their hands differently on digital pads versus paper and because digital pads provide lower resolution. Equally troubling, defendants use signature exemplars from individuals without giving the individuals any notice to exercise care in creating their signatures because they could be used in the future with formal legal effect, including their potential disenfranchisement. So the claim is that they should be told at the point at the DMV, for instance, that their signature is a formal signature that could be used later to match their ballots their actual vote. And if this signature doesn't look like that signature, if they don't take time to make a perfect signature that they can repeat later, they might lose their right to vote. Plaintiffs have been informed that Runbeck employees who operated the software arbitrarily adjusted the software settings to increase the number of high-confidence classifications. So what happens is that the program analyzes the ballot signature against the signature exemplar and then responds with either low confidence of a match, medium confidence of a match or high confidence of a match. They're saying that runback employees change the settings so that more of the signatures would be moved into that high confidence category. Maricopa County signature verifiers received no training in handwriting analysis, and there is no evidence they are screened for conditions such as poor eyesight that may impede their ability to discern subtle variations in signatures. These people were hired as temporary workers. Twenty four of them paid fifteen dollars an hour to do this. They might as well have been hired by Stacey Abrams temp agency. Happy faces. And in fact, this is the sort of thing Stacey Abrams, temp agency, Happy Faces, hired people to do in 2020, 15 bucks an hour, do what we tell you to do. We're going to tell the public that you are all well-trained election workers who can be trusted to safeguard the integrity of our elections. In 2020, the Maricopa County Director of Elections asked Runbeck, we trained staff to look at high confidence one way and low confidence another. So, I need to have them made aware that the high confidence is not really true, and there can and will be a mix of all types match, no match, no signature, etc. in the high confidence queue, correct? Nice system you got there, huh? It is entirely possible that Runbeck assigns probabilities based on impermissible extrinsic factors such as a voter's political affiliation, prior rating record, race, or gender or place of residence. And of course, they're doing that because they have that information and they're trying to cheat. So why wouldn't they be using every possible loophole to do that? They can apply different standards based on who the voter is, and there's no reason to believe they're not doing it. Maricopa County further provided its signature verifiers with the following instructional training on comparing the signatures on their monitors. Analyze the broad local characteristics and letter forms. And that apparently was the end of the training. According to the elections plan, in this first review, staff can only select one of the following two options. Approve the signature if it matches one of the signatures used for this initial review or move it to an exception status if it does not. However, reports from signature verifiers indicate that their managers improperly approved signatures they had rejected without following rational standards, simply because they believed Maricopa County's system had resulted in too many rejected signatures. So they weren't getting the outcome they wanted. The signature verifiers were rejecting too many. They were saying these don't match. And so their managers took those rejected signatures and just switched the outcomes and approved them. And this one is rather shocking upon information and belief. It would take at least 30 seconds for anyone viewing an image on a monitor to compare a signature on a ballot with a known or attributed signature to meaningfully double check the decision made by the artificial intelligence software. So how long would it take you to compare two signatures and make sure that they really are the same and not faked It would take a few seconds. It would take a little while. They estimate about 30 seconds, and that seems totally reasonable to me, but who knows? I've never actually attempted to do it. To make matters worse, the standard by which signatures were verified was lowered throughout the day of the election in order to process a greater volume of mail-in ballots at a faster clip. In order to review 1.3 million ballot signatures in the allotted time, 32 signature verifiers taking no breaks would need to set a blistering pace of reviewing one signature match every 0.975 seconds. So a new signature to be matched in less than a second over and over and over again by 32 people with no breaks to do it in the amount of time they said for 1.3 million signatures. Now that's not possible. And when something is not possible... That means it didn't happen. They reported, however, that it did happen and that the process was followed in the right way to do the one point three million ballot signatures, 32 signature verifiers doing one every 0.975 seconds every working day would take 37 days. This pace is not only a physical impossibility for human beings, but attempting anything resembling it. Would result in signature verifiers relying even more on the unproven conclusions of the delegated software. They also cited studies showing that married women, trans people, and domestic abuse survivors are disproportionately likely to have their vote rejected because they have changed their name. Married women take on the husband's last name, they have to come up with a new signature. Trans people change their name, come up with a new signature. Domestic abuse survivors who are into some sort of protection program and take on a new name. So these are the kinds of people more likely to have their votes rejected. Very woke AI in a similar challenge. The court in Saucedo versus Gardner reasoned that the natural variations in a person's handwriting, many of which are unintentional or uncontrollable, like mental or physical condition. When combined with the absence of functional standards, training, review and oversight, create a tangible risk of erroneous deprivation. This actually strikes at the entire institution of signature matching as some sort of validation of real ballots. None of this would be necessary if we didn't have the ridiculous mail-in ballot program, the Dropbox program, all of it. The use of non-governmental third-party artificial intelligence software as a substitute for the statutorily mandated signature verification process violates the 14th Amendment's equal protection provisions because there is no formalized statewide procedure or standard for electoral staff to evaluate whether a confidence level has been met. That is whether the delegated software has accurately assessed whether two signatures are a match. And in addition to the unreliability of the system, of the delegated software, the artificial intelligence, we have the election employees, the managers, changing the settings so that more are considered high confidence. We have an impossibly short amount of time for these to be reviewed, implying that they weren't reviewed. In addition to all of that, we have the factor that once someone is told by, A machine with this amazing artificial intelligence that a signature does match, it biases them toward believing that the signature does match. And under pressure and time constraints, they are more likely to simply side with whatever the machine has spit out, again, making it unreasonable to believe that the job was competently done. They claim that as a result, plaintiffs and other voters suffered and will continue to suffer irreparable harm namely disenfranchisement through vote dilution, the prayer for relief. Plaintiffs respectfully request the following relief, declare impermissible and unlawful the use of unproven and opaque third-party computer software that delegates the function of determining initially or otherwise the validity or invalidity or likely validity or invalidity of a ballot affidavit signature under Arizona revised statute section 16-672 and unconstitutional under the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment to the United States constitution and find and conclude that in doing so or allowing it to be done during or in connection with the 2022 general election for governor defendants violated those provisions declare impermissible and unlawful the use of unproven and opaque third-party computer software. And they claim the same about the process of unveiling the machine's interpretation of the validity of the match to the people assigned to verify the match because it biases them. They ask temporarily, preliminarily and permanently to restrain and enjoin the state of Arizona and Maricopa County from using unproven and opaque non-governmental third-party software vendors and artificial intelligence to perform the function of determining initially or otherwise the validity or invalidity or likely validity or invalidity of a ballot affidavit signature. So just barring the use of this system entirely, enjoin the use of signature verification software for which software code AI training methods and data, manual curve fitting practices, error rates, including false negatives or rejects and false positives or accepts and similar data have not been made reasonably available for public notice and comment. So they're doing it without any input from the public mandate that election officials in Arizona seek to extend the time and resources available for signature verification to ensure such verification is constitutionally adequate to the task of verifying millions of signatures. It seems they're not doing it at all because the requirements for them to have done it the way they claimed violate the laws of physics. They asked the court to affirm that Mojave County voters early voting ballots meeting the statutory requirements and verified by trained human beings are counted in the 2022 general election for governor. And they ask the court to invalidate and set aside the 2022 Maricopa County general election results for the race for governor and or invalidate and set aside all Maricopa County mail-in ballots in the 2022 general election for governor. So, obviously I have no idea where this case is going. We shall see. Maybe the courts in Mojave County will render a proper verdict. This election in Maricopa County, in Arizona, and in many other places around the country was administered in violation of the law and was administered with processes that are bound to produce fraudulent outcomes, unreliable, unverifiable outcomes. They do it on purpose. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's a system. This is how the system works. You can see the system at work. These are the results the system is designed to produce, and you see the system produce these results. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. It's election theft, and we have to stop it everywhere. I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.